Hello, it's Friday the 4th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. South Korea and the U.S. announced that the Vigilant Storm joint air drills will be extended until Saturday, as the two nations' defense chiefs also warned that if North Korea uses nuclear weapons against the South, it will spell the end of the regime. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For a special in-depth on the Itaewon crowd crush disaster, we speak to a foreign correspondent in Seoul who's been covering the incident and how it has been viewed internationally. And coming up for weekly economy review, we discuss the latest US rate hike and concerns over South Korea's continuing high inflation. Let's begin Korea 24. And I'd like to reiterate that all the efforts that you put in is directly put in uh, for the security of the Korean Peninsula and they can play a very crucial role for the peace on the Korean Peninsula as well. That was South Korea's Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup and his translator as he talked to U.S. troops at Joint Base Andrews in Maryland. He was with the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin as well as they inspected nuclear-capable B-52 as well as B-1 bombers. The two top brass held their annual meeting in Washington during which the U.S. pledged to constantly deploy U.S. strategic assets on rotation that will equate to a more permanent presence on the Korean Peninsula. Let's listen to what Yi and Austin had to say. Secretary Austin pledged to effectively respond to any DPRK provocation by employing U.S. strategic assets to the level equivalent to constant deployment through increasing the frequency and intensity of strategic asset deployment in and around the Korean Peninsula. We'll work together to ensure that we uh, provide the right kind of uh, deterrent message. So to answer your question, uh, no new deployment of uh, strategic assets on a permanent basis, but you'll see assets moving in and out uh, on, on a routine basis. This is, of course, a show of solidarity in the face of escalating aggression by North Korea in recent weeks and months that included launches of ballistic missiles. Our KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to break down the meeting, the latest provocations by North Korea, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So during the 54th South Korea-U.S. Security Consultative Meeting, or SCM, at the Pentagon on Thursday, the two military leaders slammed North Korea for an intercontinental ballistic missile and dozens of short-range missiles recently. They also delivered a stern warning to Pyongyang. So what did they say exactly? Well, Yi and Austin held a joint news conference after that meeting and warned that the Kim Jong-un regime would collapse in the event of an actual nuclear attack. Let's listen to what Minister Lee had to say. Secretary Austin and I affirm that any nuclear attack by the DPRK, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons, is unacceptable and will result in the end of the Kim Jong-un regime by the overwhelming and decisive response of the alliance. 
The two sides agreed to mobilize U.S. strategic assets on the Korean peninsula more frequently to contain North Korea. This comes after the North escalated its tensions by uh, firing off more than 60 missiles so far this year, including a launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile on Thursday. The U.S. and South Korea announced on Thursday, it would extend their joint uh, vigilant storm air force exercise, to which North Korea responded by shooting another round of short-range ballistic missiles. Speaking of the extended drills, North Korea denounced South Korea and the US for its decision, calling it an awful mistake and dangerous choice. Uh, this is when they followed up with those uh, additional missile launches. And we also have reports that South Korea deployed jet fighters on Friday after detecting some 180 North Korean warplanes in the air. So can you give us more details about North Korea's latest aggressions? Well, Park Jong-chun, uh, vice chairman of the Central Military Committee of North Korea's ruling Workers' Party, said in a statement carried by the Korean Central News Agency on Thursday that the irresponsible decision is worsening the present situation caused by the provocative acts uh, of the Allied forces pushing it into an uncontrollable uh, phase. He added that the US and South Korea will discover what an irrevocable and awful mistake they made. Immediately after releasing the statement, North Korea shot off three short-range ballistic missiles from around Koksan County in North Pange province towards the East Sea area and later fired some 80 artillery shells into the military buffer zone into the East Sea in violation of the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement, according to South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, The South Korean military also scrambled F-35A stealth fighter jets and other Air Force assets on Friday after detecting some 180 North Korean planes between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Friday. The JCS added that its 240 planes taking part in the vigilant storm drills are also on standby to counter and provide follow-up support and air defence power in the event of further escalation. And we'll bring you more updates on the mounting tensions in the days to come. Let's turn to the latest updates related to the Itaewon crowd crush disaster. President Yoon Sung-yeol apologised on Friday, saying he felt sad and sorry over the incident as the head of state responsible for the lives and safety of the Korean people. Can you tell us more? Well, this marks the first public apology by President Yoon over the tragedy that took the lives of 156 people, including 26 internationals. The president made the remarks in his address at a Buddhist memorial service for the victims of the accident, um, and that was at Choge Temple in central Seoul. In his address, Yoon said he is fully aware that the government and he have a duty to oversee the aftermath of the accident in a responsible manner and prevent a recurrence of similar accidents. The president also vowed careful and full support for the victims' families and for those receiving treatment. And the 
National Police Agency's Special Investigation Headquarters are probing the deadly crush uh, has so far received accounts from 85 witnesses and victims. At a press conference on Friday, the headquarters chief said they also questioned uh, the head of the emergency situation room at the Yongsan police station and three police officers dispatched to the scene, none of whom have yet been booked. Over 140 surveillance footage uh, recordings have been analysed with the National uh, Forensic Service in the process to digitally reconstruct the situation at the time of the incident in a 3D simulation. The uh, team plans to first determine the exact cause of the tragedy before looking into allegations that the Yongsan police and the district office had failed to take necessary safety precautions, as well as accusations that the police responded negligently. And finally, South Korea and Germany have agreed to strengthen bilateral cooperation in economic security to promote stable supply chains and energy security. This was in a joint statement released after President Yun held a summit with visiting German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier in Seoul on Friday. Can you elaborate? Well, Yun referred to Germany as a key economic partner and lauded the expanded ties encompassing future industries such as hydrogen energy and digitization with a boost in German investment in South Korea. Yun expressed South Korea's willingness to cooperate with Germany on economic security. Still, he noted concern over growing protectionism across Europe, encouraging Berlin to help ensure that South Korean businesses do not face any disadvantages. Regarding North Korea's latest provocations, the two leaders agreed to coordinate response measures while working to improve the human rights situations within the regime. Uh, Yun also thanked his German counterpart for offering condolences on behalf of the German people for the tragic death in Itaewon. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Almost a week has passed since more than 150 people lost their lives in a crowd crush incident in Itaewon's hole. Almost 100,000 people have visited memorials set up around Seoul by the government and thousands more have visited the unofficial memorial set up outside Exit 1 of Itaewon Station. But questions still remain about the failings by the police to prevent the tragedy and meanwhile, many of the bodies of the foreign victims have yet to be sent back to their home countries. As a continuation of our special coverage of the incident, we have joining us on the line now William Gallo, the Seoul Bureau Chief for Voice of America, to get a foreign journalist's perspective on the tragedy and its implications. Mr Gallo, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been almost a week since the incident. Uh, can you give us an update on what we know so far about what happened and how it's been handled uh, by the government since? Yeah, I mean, there's there's several investigations that are ongoing. Uh, there's been some sort of, let's just say, not very pretty details come out so far regarding how quick the police responded, what police priorities may have been. Uh, there were obviously many calls ahead of this crowd crush turning deadly, and uh, they were not responded to promptly. I can say uh, 
for the most part, the government seems contrite. It seems that it is willing to accept responsibility. I mean, that Prime Minister Han appeared before foreign journalists a few days ago and answered as many questions as he could. This is a delicate situation. You know, the investigation is continuing. He, he had some details. He did not have all details. It was clear that there is sort of growing public anger as, as things sort of have shifted uh, since this accident from sort of shock to anger. I, I expect there will be more anger in the coming days. The sort of some of the details come out of this investigation, but it seems important for the government to sort of be as transparent as possible, even though the details really are not pretty at this point. Right. So uh, there were failures by the police, it seems, but there are still questions remaining about how those failures happened exactly, and who along the command. Who along the chain of command was responsible for some of the key decisions made or not made, as it were? But uh, hopefully we will get some answers soon as well. Uh, the incident has, of course, been reported worldwide with many eyes around the world looking into what happened that night. Uh, how do you think the incident is being viewed among foreign journalists? Can you tell us? Yeah, this is obviously a location that is familiar to foreign journalists. It's where a lot of us live. If we don't live there... You know, we hang out in Itaewon or pass by on our way to work. I mean, as you know, the area is almost synonymous with foreigners, and it's really hard to imagine a story in Seoul that could sort of more acutely be felt by foreign journalists. So perhaps because of that and perhaps also just because it's a, a horrible uh, story, that, uh, you know, it's getting a lot of attention, especially in the international media. Um you know, there are a lot of foreign journalists in Seoul. The foreign media contingency has gotten a lot larger mm. over the last year, especially as many have moved from Hong Kong and other places. I think that uh, that's part of the reason why you've seen a lot more uh, attention on this story worldwide. It is getting a lot of attention. You know, even from my family uh, back home, they continue to ask about this sort of, you know, how could it happen here? How could it happen in South Korea? I, I think it's sort of one of the big questions that people have overseas about this. Uh, meanwhile, we wanted to also ask you today about the foreign victims from the tragedy. 26 uh, foreigners were killed in the accident, including five from Iran, four from both China and Russia, two each from the US and Japan, and one each from Australia, Austria, France, Kazakhstan, Norway, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Uzbekistan and Vietnam. One of the two American victims has been identified as the niece of the Ohio congressman Brad Wenstrup. What has been the general reaction to the incident by these countries? You know, I mean, as I said earlier, I think that many countries remain exceedingly interested in this story. I've done a lot of foreign media interviews uh, from, from many of the countries that you've mentioned. And sort of one of the questions, one of the first questions and one of the most common questions is, how can it happen in South Korea, such a modern country, you know? Um, I, I've done a lot of interviews with, like, Middle East uh, news outlets and things, and that's always their first question, because they, they know that South Korea is sort of this pop culture powerhouse that has a very technologically savvy reputation and all of these things, and they just wonder sort of how it can happen there, and if it can happen in South Korea, you know, uh, how do we prevent it happening here, I think is a question a lot of people ask. As far as, you know, the countries 
where you've seen victims from. Uh, there have been bits of anger expressed, and particularly in Iran, the Iranian government has criticized South Korea for inadequate crowd control measures. I think that's a pattern you've seen in some of those other countries that you mentioned where there were victims from. Uh, but, but you know, uh, more than anything, I, I think it's just a question of, wow, you know, uh, how, how is this able to happen in South Korea, of all places? Sure. Uh, there's been many reactions, of course, uh, to the incident, from mourning to anger as well. Uh, once it became clear that a significant number of victims were foreign nationals, the South Korean government announced that it will offer 20 million won in relief assistance and 15 million won in funeral expenses to the foreign victims uh, that passed away. But understand that it hasn't all gone smoothly. There have been reports of uh, some difficulties that the bereaved families are facing in terms of uh, receiving the relief funds and procedures related to uh, repatriating uh, the bodies of the victims to their home countries. What can you tell us uh, about the assistance that Korea has given? Yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, uh, 20 million won in relief and assistance and 15 million won in funeral expenses is, it could be seen as quite generous. I think that if they're able to get those in the hands of the people that need it, that is a positive step. I think you have an interesting dynamic here in that there were so many victims and so many people impacted by this uh, disaster that it's inevitable that some are going to fall through the cracks. And so uh, it seems that it's important for the South Korean government to continue to be proactive and sort of setting up mechanisms for victims to request help directly. I know it's unavoidable, perhaps, that, uh, you know, many uh, victims' families will sort of have to resort to going to the media and talking to the media to sort of get their word out and be able to sort of, you know, prompt South Korean action. But in general, I must say, um, being proactive is very good in these instances. Uh, bureaucracy can, can prevent some of these, uh, you know, uh, amounts of money being dispersed to individuals. I think that South Korea's government is doing what it can at this point to sort of get over those barriers. Mm. But in, in, in as many ways as they can to put out to put out mechanisms where victims can directly request these things seems to be a positive thing. Sure, they do sound like uh, bureaucratic issues, as you said, that the Korean government wants to help, uh, but are running into perhaps some uh, administrative issues. Hopefully it can be resolved quickly uh, for the sake of the victims' families. Turning back to the incident itself, I know you've been to the accident site itself, I have spoken to locals and experts about what happened. Uh, what have you concluded about what happened? Who do you think bears the brunt of the responsibility? Well, you're right. I've, I've been there like many other journalists, and I was familiar with the area in Itaewon. And I think that uh, in the days right after the incident, it sort of became clear that this was a failure of planning that actually to prevent this accident, it would have taken some forethought and some very simple tools, the traffic control measures, perhaps, you know, uh, even as little as just a fence or two or, or some, some barricades and police sort of uh, directing traffic this way or the other. It seems to be a failure of planning to actually control traffic. I am reluctant, personally speaking, and as a journalist, to put too much responsibility on individual officers who may or may not have done all they can to respond in that moment. 
I know that there are uh, reports and police have said that, you know, those 11 phone calls that, that came out before the deadly part of the crowd surge began uh, were not responded to adequately. I understand how people would be frustrated by that. I, I have to question, though, that, you know, what could have been sort of done at that point anyway when a crowd that large was allowed to gather in that small of space without any thought of how to control it. It seems to be a situation where if they had uh, had different priorities, I mean, obviously we've seen headlines about many South Korean police being actually deployed at a nearby protest in other parts of Seoul. Uh, this is not something we don't see in South Korea. I mean, you walk around South Korea all the time and you see massive amounts of, of crowd control by South Korean police at protests and things. So it seems like a, a shift in priorities is in order. But, you know, as far as who is responsible, who should be held accountable, that's not really for me to say. I just hope that the South Korean government, as they're investigating this, uh, don't let the ball roll too far down the hill and shift the blame downward, because this is a thing that required planning, and it, and it mm. clearly did not receive that sort of attention. Uh, have you been able to make any perhaps comparisons with how such events are handled in the U.S., such as New Year's or Halloween party districts as well, maybe? Is there anything uh, you think South Korea could learn from uh, the U.S.? Yeah, that's the thing is that I don't really know if there's any lessons to learn other than just to sort of shift the priorities. Uh, maybe perhaps some of the resources that go to policing protests could be used for other methods of crowd control. As I said, Obviously, it's a very common occurrence to come across really, really just hundreds or, or even thousands of, of South Korean police officers that are patrolling very, very small protests here. Others pointed this out right away. This is not something that South Korean police do not have experience doing. It's just it seems that like since this event did not have an organizer, perhaps there were not sort of the, the processes in place to be able to have a major police presence to control that. And that is a failure to really imagine that things could go wrong. And I expect that South Korea and, and, and the Seoul government will, will get better at this. It, it, it's not actually too hard. And that's sort of the heartbreaking thing here is that really just a few barricades may have prevented this situation. Uh, Mr. Gallo, how have you and your fellow journalists been coping with everything uh, you've seen in recent days? The Korean Neuropsychiatric Association has advised the public to refrain from uh, intently and repeatedly looking at details and reports of what happened. But as a journalist, of course, uh, you don't really have uh, much of a choice. How has covering this story affected you? Yeah, you know, I would hesitate to sort of think of myself as any sort of victim and all that. For sure, the dynamic you pointed out there is true, that journalists really don't have a choice. We sort of, uh, by necessity, have to sort of almost put our feelings aside as much as we can, especially in those first days after something like this. And then you don't think about it too much, and then you just don't know whenever the emotions will come at you. I think that many of my colleagues, uh, especially over the last few days, as, as they've continued to focus on the story, have experienced uh, some of those feelings. Uh, me, myself, I've actually been focused also on North Korea issues, which have been quite busy. So honestly, it's been almost a week of, of nonstop work for me, and, and not only on this issue, so perhaps that's been a good distraction. However, I think it's become more acceptable sort of to talk about how these issues 
are sort of impacting your psyche as a journalist. And there's even some events that uh, various organizations have set up, online listening sessions with licensed trauma specialists and things, and they're offering that support for free. Um, You know, that kind of thing is more common, and I think that more people in my profession are taking advantage of that type of thing. And just one more question, Mr. Gallo. Do you th- what do you think needs to be the next steps in dealing with this tragedy to uh, perhaps for the nation to try and start bring some closure to what happened? I would just say that the government needs to continue to commit to sort of a full investigation and follow the evidence wherever it leads and and definitely be committed to transparency as much as possible. There will there have already been very embarrassing details that have come out. There will likely be more embarrassing details that have come out. But in order to sort of restore public trust moving forward, I think it seems really important for the government to sort of uh, be as transparent as they can and honest as they can about what went wrong and how they can prevent this kind of thing in the future. Well, Mr. Gallo, we appreciate your time and your efforts in covering this story. We've been speaking to William Gallo from The Voice of America. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Next up, it's our regular Friday in-depth segment, Weekly Economy Review. This week, we discuss another giant step rate hike by the U.S. Federal Reserve. We'll take a closer look at the growth in South Korea's consumer prices in October. And we'll also look at the seventh consecutive month of a trade deficit for Korea. To help us look beyond the numbers is economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello. It's uh, great to have you with us. Happy to be here. We start in the U.S. The U.S. Federal Reserve raised its key interest rate on Wednesday by three quarters of a percentage point for the fourth consecutive time as it steps up its efforts to bring the stubbornly high inflation under control. The latest hike was widely expected as consumer prices in the U.S. remained high with an 8.2% on-year gain in September. But perhaps what was not expected was that the Fed has hinted that it will continue raising interest rates for longer than previously thought. So, Professor, what's your take on the latest hike? Okay, well, it was inevitable. The Fed has been strongly signaling that uh, they will raise the rates by 75 basis points since September. And while there were a lot of comments, a lot of analysts who were hoping that the uh, rate increase will be either higher or lower, they basically kept to their signal and raised it by 75 basis points. I don't think they really had a choice uh, because while the September consumer price index inflation, while slightly lower than August, the headline inflation was still high, uh, 0.4% over uh, over the month and 8.2% over 12 months. But more worrying was that core CPI inflation was higher than the headline. It was 0.6% for the month and uh, 6.6% for 12 months, though there's some question on how much is due to past increases in shelter-related prices and how much uh, is because of current rise in prices. But still, with inflation like this, uh, they could not afford to go low. Uh, Are you optimistic then that the Fed's latest increase will 
be effective in controlling inflation? Have the Fed's uh, rate hikes in recent months had much of an effect? Not really. I don't think it'll be very effective, partially because of the time lag. We think that it'll take about six months to, or even more to uh, have the uh, rate increases uh, make itself felt in the economy. Mm. Uh, there are some signs that at least some indicators are showing that inflation may be slacking off, but uh, labor market is slowing but still strong. There's more jobs than workers. Uh, wage increase is still high at 5%, though that is lower than inflation. Uh, the, the reason why the labor market is so strong is becoming more mysterious. Older workers are returning to the workforce. Pandemic effects are falling, but the labor market still seems to be very strong despite the uh, rapid rise in uh, interest rates. Uh, so there's no clear signs that inflation is going to come down to anywhere near the Fed target level of 2%. Uh, so uh, we're probably in for even more uh, rate increases. The Fed has signaled that previously they were saying uh, the rates will probably top off at 4.75% uh, sometime early next year, but it'll continue for a long time. But now there seems to be giving signals that the uh, rate can go as high as 525 or 5.5%. Yes, that has spooked a lot of the stock markets as well. Uh, meanwhile, the Bank of Korea's benchmark rate is now 100 basis points lower than the Fed's. Uh, what are the latest signs on the Bank of Korea's next rate decision coming on November 24th? OK, well, uh, they're giving strong signals that it will be 50 basis points. Uh, but the problem is we're having a lot of other problems as well. And the uh, rate decision will take place, uh, it will be decided on which problem takes precedence exchange rate and international capital flows, or domestic inflation, or domestic bond market, or growth. Uh, depending on which priority they take, they will have to make a different decision. Uh, the, uh, if, uh, I think the most important uh, element right now is the exchange rate, and the BOK is in a similar problem, a similar situation to where they had in August. Uh, Bank of Korea has no monetary policy meeting in December, but U.S. does have one in December. Mm. Uh, so there's going to be a uh, probably a 50 basis point increase by the United States in December. And they also have another FOMC meeting on January 31st. Uh, BOK's next uh, meeting uh, after December, uh, after November, it's not set yet. Uh, it'll probably be sometime in mid-January, but still, we don't know when the uh, uh, first meeting of the monetary policy meeting for BOK will be next year. Uh, now, the current rate difference is 100 basis points. If the BOK raises the rates by expected 50, uh, 50 basis points, then the difference will be shrunk down to 50 basis points. But if, as expected, the uh, Fed raises the rate by another 50 basis points in December, that'll, again, the gap will be 100 basis points. And if the Fed decides to go on a faster in interest rate increase path, that gap may rise even higher. So uh, we may be in a situation where the gap rises higher than expected, and that will cause another havoc in the exchange rate uh, a foreign currency market. So uh, the Bank of Korea, I think, ha will have no choice but to raise it by 50 basis points. And it may even have to raise it by 75. Mm, yes, that's definitely something we'll have to keep an eye out on. A factor uh, that will be under consideration, of course, when making that decision will be the level of inflation in Korea. October figures were released this week. South Korea's consumer prices rose 5.7% on year last month, climbing by 0.1 percentage point uh, from the previous month. 
It's the first time that the inflation figures have accelerated in three months. So what factors led to this rise? OK, well, monthly inflation rate was 0.3%. It's still high, but much lower than it was in summer. Uh, but I think what caused people to worry was that core inflation seems to be accelerating. Core inflation without agricultural product and oil uh, was 0.6% uh, for the month. Uh, core inflation without food and energy was 0.4% for the month, and that's both higher than it was in September. Uh, but I'm not sure if we should be all that worried because the main contributor to inflation uh, for October was actually utilities, electricity, water, and gas. Uh, those utilities went up by 23.1% over 12 months, and get this, 8.8% just on the month of September. Mm. Uh, sorry, October. Uh, so uh, the contribution of, of these utility price increases for October, well, the uh, monthly inflation was 0.28%, uh, but the uh, contribution of utilities was 0.32%. That means if we ignore utilities, it, prices actually fell for the month. Mm, okay. uh, and you also have to remember, utility prices are not set by the market. It's set by the government. Mm. So the reason that we had a higher inflation this month was not necessarily because of the market forces, but because the government uh, could not continue to keep the utility prices low, so they had to raise it all at once. So this is a policy problem. It may not be a market problem. Right, and a senior official at Statistics Korea, Aun Sun, said that the agency believes consumer prices peaked back in July when the prices rose 6.3% on year, uh, growing at the steepest pace in nearly 24 years. He also downplayed the possibility that inflation will surpass the 6% mark again in the months to come. Are you on board with Arden? I'm on board with it, but I don't think the inflation is going to fall particularly quickly. So mm. we'll be stuck in a 5% level for quite a while. Uh, but things are looking a bit more optimistic. Oil and gas prices are holding surprisingly steady. Oil price, uh, West Texas Intermediate, is around $69 per barrel. Uh, the uh, natural gas prices are around $5.90 uh, $5 per billion uh, for a million BTUs, and this is despite the OPEC saying they will cut supply of gas uh, of oil, and Russia saying uh, Russia cutting their supply of gas to Europe. Uh, so we're actually doing very well in terms of commodity prices. Uh, the uh, pandemic effect seems to be going down also, but what is going to be very dangerous is inflationary expectations because we had high inflation for uh, so long, and the exchange rates if they go. Uh, uh, explode again, then that will uh, make the import prices go up as well. Uh, so we need to keep an eye on those factors. But as long as inflation expectations are, uh, remain reasonable and exchange rates do not uh, go surprisingly uh, high again, uh, then we will probably have hit peak inflation. It'll still be high inflation, mm. but it will not go beyond where it was during the summer, more than 6%. Sure, the signs are encouraging, but we're perhaps not out of the woods quite yet. Uh, on that note, there's one more concerning data point to look at this week. South, Korea's, uh, South Korea posted a trade deficit for the seventh consecutive month in October. But the troubling point is that Onya exports fell for the first time since October 2020 as well. Outbound shipments was down 5.7% on year. Imports, meanwhile, grew 9.9% on year. So how concerning is the continuing trade deficit coupled with uh, the exports falling as well. Okay, well, uh, my 
opinion is a bit problematic because it looks at how it changed from last month to this month, and there are always seasonal problems to be concerned, which I'm ignoring here. But it looks like the problem lies more with falling exports than uh, imports, because uh, both exports and import values fell in oct uh, October compared to September. Uh, exports of September was $57.4 billion, but it was only $52.5 million in October, and that seems to be the main reason why trade deficit has increased. Uh, the imports of energy actually fell in both terms of price and volume, uh, and I expect the imports to continue to fall, but if exports fall more quickly, well, we may get a trade surplus, but it'll be sort of a recessionary trade surplus where both exports and imports are down. Mm. That signals a very bad news for Korean economic activity. Uh, and I think that reflects partially the possibility right now that the global economy will slow down. That's part of the reason why I think exports are falling. Uh, hopefully, Chinese economy will get a bit better. So our semiconductor exports and ex other exports to China will go up. Uh, but if it does not, uh, then we're, seeing, we're going to see some problems in the uh, trade area as well. OK, we'll wrap it up there for our weekly Economy Review. Professor Yang, thank you, as always, for your insights. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 19.26 points, or 0.83% on Friday, closing the week at 2,348.43. The tech-heavy Kosdaq fell, however, losing 0.24 points, or 0.03%, closing the day at 693.89. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 4.61 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,419.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment, taking a look at some of the other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us Walter Lee. Walter, hello. It's good to see you again. Hello, Tango. It's always good to see you. So what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll find out why one of the memorials set up for victims of the Itaewon crowd crush has drawn particular attention. We'll also talk about why there will be no street cheering in the capital for the up-and-coming FIFA World Cup. And finally, we'll discover how much the US government is offering for information on a Singaporean national suspected of providing sanctioned services to North Korea. Okay, so Walter, take us to that first story then. Yeah, so tomorrow is very sadly exactly one week after the Itaewon crowd crush occurred. The government set up a total of 69 memorials across the nation, including 25 in Seoul, to remember those who lost their lives. Of the many memorials in the city, one in particular stands out, a memorial space located right outside the exit one of Itaewon subway station is drawing a continuous line of mourners as it is situated within 10 metres of where the crowd surge happened. Yes, I understand there is another reason that makes this memorial special as well. Yeah, that would be the fact that it was set up by the citizens and not the government. Thanks to volunteers, this space remains organised, filled with chrysanthemums and handwritten letters, all paying tribute to the victims. Those participating in such work say they decided to volunteer to be of any help to the victims and the bereaved families. 
Right, so it's an unofficial memorial and not one of the official 69 memorials set up by the government, uh, but it is the closest one to the accident site itself and one that arose spontaneously. Mm. Meanwhile, I understand that a significant number of people have visited the official memorial sites as well. Mm, that's right. So it is estimated that more than 90,000 people who have visited the 25 memorials set up in Seoul alone from last Sunday to Thursday. So these spaces set up by the government will run operations until Saturday when the national mourning period will end. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Han Dok-su said Friday that the government will set up a support centre for those who lost loved ones or were injured in the Itaewon crowd crush after the national mourning period ends. Yes, it will end at midnight on Saturday, but uh, of course it will only be the start for the nation to try and come to terms with what happened. Mm. Right, let's move on to our next story. I believe it's related to the Itaewon disaster as well. Yeah, that's correct. So it has been decided that street cheering will not be held in Seoul for the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar, which will kick off on November 20th. Now, the Korea Football Association, or KFA, announced on Friday that it is seeking to cancel its request to use Guahamun Square in downtown Seoul for cheering events during the soccer competition, which runs through to December 18th. The association said together with Seoul City, it had made preparations for such events to take place in the square as it had in previous World Cups in uh, the previous World Cup in 2018. However, after extensive talks, it decided not to do it this year. Okay, so what led the association to scrap such plans? Yeah, like you mentioned before, um, so the KFA said it made the decision after assessing that it would not be appropriate to hold such events less than a month after the Itaewon crowd crush had occurred. The association said it reached the final decision in hopes that the move will be of some consolation to the brave families and those devastated by the tragedy. Yes, the sight of thousands of people in red lining the streets to cheer on the national team has been iconic for many years now, right? Yeah, that's correct. So these events for the World Cup first began in 2002 when South Korea and Japan jointly hosted the major soccer tournament. Through the 2014 World Cup, these events were organised by private sponsors and companies. But for the last World Cup held in Russia in 2018, the cheering events were jointly organised by the KFA and the Seoul Metropolitan Government. With the latest decision, crowds won't be taking to the streets to cheer for Team Korea for the first time in 20 years. Yes, it will perhaps just be too soon, uh, but I'm sure people will be cheering at home and at private locations and that the players uh, will feel that support as well. Let's move on to our final story for today. What else has been trending? Right. The United States is offering up to $5 million in rewards for information on a Singaporean national who is suspected of providing internationally sanctioned services to North Korea. Now, on Thursday, the State Department announced the bounty put on Kwek Gi-seng, who works at the Singaporean-based shipping agency Swansea's Port Services. U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Security Gonzalo Suarez said Quek has engaged in an extensive scheme to evade United Nations and U.S. sanctions to covertly transport fuel to North Korea. It is believed that this was done through ship-to-ship transfers and at least one direct delivery to a North Korean port in 2020. Okay, so which sanctions did the North violate, according to the US officials? A UN Security Council resolution adopted in September 2017 prohibits all member states from facilitating or engaging in ship-to-ship transfers of goods to or from 
North Korean flagged vessels. Now, the resolution also prohibits member states from engaging in the direct or indirect supply, sale or transfer to the North or refined petroleum products beyond 500,000 barrels every year. Now, according to the State Department, Pyongyang has not once observed the annual cap since such sanctions were put in place in 2018. Okay, and $5 million is quite a considerable sum. Can you tell us uh, about this reward that the department is offering? It's called the Rewards for Justice Program. Paul Houston, a senior State Department official, said the rewards offer up to $5 million for information that leads to the disruption of financial mechanisms of persons engaged in certain activities that support the North. Now, such activities include money laundering, the exportation of luxury goods to the North, specified uh, cyber activity, and actions that support weapons of mass destruction proliferation. Now, this is the first time that the State Department has put a bounty on an individual with regard to sanctions on North Korea. Yes, yeah, so the US is looking to up the pressure on North Korea in this way as well, it seems. We'll wrap it up there for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's time for us to look ahead to what's happening next week in our Friday segment, Next Week from Seoul. And previewing those events for us is our staff editor, Richard Larkin, who's here with us now in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what's the first thing we should look out for next week? Well, the 40th and the 41st ASEAN summits will be held in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, next Thursday to Sunday. The ASEAN summit is a biannual meeting held by leaders and delegates to discuss the economic, political, security and socio-cultural development of Southeast Asian countries. Leaders from non-ASEAN member countries are also expected to attend, as usual. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol is expected to attend the summit talks, including the ASEAN Plus Three and the East Asian Summit. Other leaders set to attend include US President Joe Biden, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as Prime Minister for Japan, Fumio Kishida. It has been announced that Myanmar's military junta chief, has not been invited to this year's summits due to the ongoing crisis with its military power. The country would only be allowed to send non-political representatives to the meeting. Okay, so it's an important event on the diplomatic calendar, particularly as it could give President Yun another chance to meet with President Biden and Prime Minister Kishida as well. Let's move on to the next piece of news for next week. What do you have for us? President Yoon Suk-yeol will hold a meeting with the government and civilians next week in the wake of the Itaewon crowd crush, which killed over 150 people and injured over 190 more. Relevant ministers and civilian experts will attend the meeting to analyse the cause of last Saturday's incident and discuss improved safety measures. They are expected to brainstorm ways to improve such measures based on examples from other countries. The participants are expected to devise ways to police and local governments to ensure safety in crowds that have freely gathered without encroaching too much on the crowd's activities. The meeting comes as, on Monday, the President ordered the creation of a crowd control system for a gathering of crowds without an organiser to prevent similar accidents in the future. OK, let's look at one more. What's the last thing we should keep an eye out for next week? Former lawmaker Na Kyung-won, who is the Special Envoy for Climate Change, will attend the COP27 conference in Egypt next week. Conference of the Parties, or COP, is an annual event where the world leaders, ministers and negotiators come together to agree on how to jointly address climate change and its impacts. Now was recently named Special Envoy for President Yoon Suk-yeol, 
and will be one of the top Korean officials attending the conference held from Monday until November 20th. Leaders from around the world have confirmed their attendance, including US President Joe Biden, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who made a quick U-turn on his decision to skip the climate talks after facing criticism. In a phone call with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi last month, Yoon said Seoul will help Egypt successfully host the event in Sham el-Sheikh next week. Yes, it'll be quite an opportunity for Nah, who is reportedly looking to run in the race to become party leader next year. So too, she'll be rubbing shoulders with some major world leaders as well. OK, that's all for next week from Seoul. Richard, thank you for that roundup, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show today and our week-long special coverage of the Itaewon disaster. We'll be back on Monday with our regular weekly segments as well as the latest news updates analysis. So we hope you join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of an earthquake. During an earthquake, you're advised to stay indoors. Going outside could be extremely dangerous, as you could be hit by shattering windows or falling signs. While indoors, turn the gas off and go under a table or desk to protect your head. Refrain from using gas or electricity until after it is confirmed to be safe. If you're in an elevator, promptly get off and seek shelter. If you're on the street, cover your head with your hands or bags and stay away from brick walls and gates. If you're driving, stop your car on the right side of the road. Before seeking shelter, close your car windows and leave your keys in the ignition then get out of your vehicle. Once the ground stops shaking, request help for the injured, while remaining mindful of possible aftershocks. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. KBS World Radio.